0: You're listening to Weird Medicine with Dr. Steve on the Riotcast Network, riotcast.com. I've got diphtheria crushing my esophagus. I've got Ebola vibes dripping from my nose. I've got the leprosy of the heart bone exacerbating my incredible woes. I want to take my brain out. Blast with the wave, an ultrasonic ecographic, and a pulsating shave. I want a magic bill. All my ailments. The health equivalent of Citizen Cain.
1: And if I don't get it now in the tablet. It's Weird Medicine, the first and still only uncensored medical show in the history of broadcast radio and Still the longest running show on this channel. I'm Dr. Steve with my, well, with, um, well I was going to say my little pal, Dr. Scott, but he's not here today. This is a show for people who've never listened to a medical show on the radio. If you've got a question you're embarrassed to take to your regular medical provider, if you can't find an answer anywhere else, give us a call at 347-766-4323. That's 347-POOHEAD. Visit our website at drsteve.com for podcast, medical news, and stuff you can buy. I can't mention because I have a contract with SiriusXM. Most importantly, we are not your medical providers. Take everything you hear with a grain of salt. Don't act on anything you hear on this show without talking it over with your doctor, nurse, practitioner, physician, assistant, pharmacist, chiropractor, acupuncturist, yoga master, physical therapist, or whatever. there you go. Most importantly, we are not your medical providers. Take everything you hear with a grain of salt. Don't act on anything you hear on this show without taking, talking it over with your doctor, nurse practitioner, physician assistant, pharmacist, chiropractor, acupuncturist, yoga master, physical therapist, or whatever. Okay. Don't forget to check out stuff.doctorsteve.com. Stuff.doctorsteve.com for all your Amazon needs. If you're going to shop, go to stuff.doctorsteve.com. It's a click-through page. If you scroll down, it'll uh, show you all the um, interesting um, uh, items that we've discussed on this show, including the womanizer which uh, we have yet to report back on. Go to tweakedaudio.com, offer code FLUID, F-L-U-I-D, for the best earbuds on the market for the price and the best customer service anywhere. And check out uh, Dr. Scott's website at simplyherbals.net. And uh, untuckit.com, offer code MEDICINE for 20% off your first order. And if you're interested in getting... Um, uh, uh, Archives of this show and premium content, which there isn't a whole lot of, but there is some. Go to premium.drsteve.com and sign up for buck ninety nine a month. You get all access to everything. And the best way to do that is to go to the App Store and download the Weird Medicine app or at Google Play. Okey-doke. Um Okay, a couple of medical stories and then we'll get into medical questions. Um, how virtual reality can boost your workout. Now, I've been waiting for this. This It's like, yes, I've been waiting for this for quite some time. Let me uh, read this story. Um, This is from Medical News Today. It says, Research shows immersing oneself uh, in a virtual environment during a workout helps boost performance and endurance as well as reduce the levels of perceived pain and effort. Uh, researchers have been looking more and more into the potential therapeutic applications of virtual reality. And uh, they've used it in cognitive behavioral therapy as well as uh, exposure therapy to reduce post-traumatic stress and also uh, uh, for confrontational therapy for uh, people with phobias. Like if you have a fear of heights, you slap on the VR and then you throw the person up in the air on a pole. It's The weird thing about it is people who have a fear of heights – Um, They're not afraid of being high up in the air. Most of the time, they can fly. They're afraid of being high up in the air when they are attached to the ground, which is interesting. So you think of it, you know, if you were on a pole and you were 30,000 feet up looking down at the ground the way it looks, it would be terrifying. But you're in an airplane. You look out the window. It's not that big of a deal unless you're just afraid to fly and start thinking of all the catastrophic things that can happen when you're 30,000 feet up but, um uh, so, yeah, they can use it for phobias, or you know one little spider becomes a whole bunch of big spiders for people that have a phobia for spiders, but anyway, um so these uh researchers looked at eighty participants and asked them to perform an isometric bicep curl at twenty percent of their maximum strength and hold the weight for as long as possible so isometrics is uh where the uh, uh the length of the muscle stays the same. So iso meaning uh, the same and metric being distance. So we used to have these isometric um, uh, uh, exercise things that look like a Z and you would pull on them and the muscles never changed length. They would just um, change tension. So uh, isometric. So they had them hold this up for as long as possible and of the participants, forty wore a headset, and forty were asked to do the same lift, but without the headset. And those that were in the VR headset saw a virtual recreation of the same environment that the group was in, the same room decorated the same way, but they were also able to see a visual representation of their arm of their arm holding the weight. So, computer that was part was computer generated, and they uh, measured their study participants' uh, heart rates, time to exhaustion. And private body consciousness, that, and what that is is a, you know, an awareness of your own body's um, sensations and feeling and stuff. So um, let's see. Previous studies showed that people with a high private body consciousness tend to perceive more pain during exercise. Well, that must be me. So the researchers wanted to see whether the psychological factor would have any bearing on the VR effects of exercise. So um, overall, the use of VR led to a decrease in pain and effort perception. After one minute of holding the weight, the pain intensity reported in the VR group was 10% lower than in the control group. That isn't a lot. <clears throat> so that means on a scale of 1 to 10, it was one lower, right, basically, um, if, if the other people were 10, of course. Uh, also, uh, the VR users lasted two minutes longer. Now, that's interesting Uh, before feeling exhausted and had a three-beat-per-minute reduction in heart rate. And, you know, the crazy thing is it wasn't that the VR was distracting them. They were showing them the same room that they were in. So this is fascinating because uh, this is my idea. I'm just going to put it out there because I'm never going to do anything with it. What I would like is an exercise bike on a gimbal. So you'd have a counterweight above you so this thing could rotate along your – uh, you know your axis of of rotation uh from side to side, and it would be balanced so that your um center of gravity was right in the middle of this thing, so you could kind of spin around you'd strap yourself in and uh you'd you'd have to be able to have some control over that, so there'd be you know a handset or if you rotate to the right you'll you'll start spinning a little bit to the right and it doesn't have to be a lot you'll notice like these disney rides they make you feel like you're spinning upside down and stuff but you're just moving a matter of inches sometimes and <clears throat> the brain uh, uh can be easily fooled uh, uh there's a disney ride well several of them that use um you know the the sort of 4D uh effect where the 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 um system around you is moving and then uh, it enhances the visual effect that you're seeing in front of you like dropping down on a roller coaster, you know, lifts up the back and you feel like you're flying downward when that's really just an illusion. Well, anyway, uh, so I would like a, a setup like that with an exercise bike and then a VR headset and then you'd have a series of different games. Maybe you're just flying through an asteroid field in the beginning that would be the tutorial to uh, get you started. And then um, later on, uh, you know, you're shooting, I don't know, I'm a nerd, shooting dragons out of the sky or whatever, or playing Magic the Gathering, but it would require you to, um, uh, you know, expend effort or you wouldn't get anywhere. And uh, depending on the level, you know, it could be more effort or less um, they always tried this with these exercise bikes. Well, oh, you're going up a hill. But all it did was just get harder. And you would see this little sort of 2D side-scrolling representation of a hill. That always just pissed me off. But this would be cool. And, you know, I know uh, I'll white water a raft uh, to the point of exhaustion because it's fun. You're going somewhere. It's a challenge. There's lots of different movements you have to make. And <clears throat> by the end of that... I may totally collapse, but I will have exercised the crap out of myself. Uh, I will snow ski to the point of exhaustion and, uh, because it's fun. And so I would do this to the point of exhaustion as well. Now, if they could figure out a way to work out some upper body and some abdominal uh, movements that were required to make the game work, I'm all in favor of it. So uh, this, uh, I, the fact that science backs me up, um uh is very encouraging to me because you know i'm getting old and i need to get off my ass and take my own advice you know at the end of every show i say get off your asses get some exercise and you know quit smoking and check your stupid nuts for lumps uh, but i i have yet to take my own uh, advice on that i really need something fun to do that i could do in the privacy of my own home that i will do to the point of exhaustion that's my point so anyway so uh we'll look forward to uh seeing more on the virtual reality exercise front if anybody knows of anything like what i'm talking about please let me know and uh the you know i looked at that peloton and i have a friend that has one and he says what he does and now look it's 2018 this is him saying it not me but uh, he goes uh, the Peloton. If you're not aware, is a an exercise bike that has a screen on it and it's interactive, and you can do live or pre-recorded spin classes. And uh, I looked at it, it; just wasn't interesting enough to me because you're just looking at a bunch of other people on bikes. But he said what they do is um, a lot of the guys will, uh, um, you know, join classes where the instructor has um you know excellent cleavage so they can stare down her shirt while they're uh exercising and it helps take some of the some of the time away I don't know that's what he's saying I'm just telling you don't uh, um anyway whatever uh I wanted to talk about some uh <clears throat> historical medicine you know when we used to have double vasectomy feces on this show he was a master barber and he used to uh Talked to us about um, barbers as physicians back in the day and where the red barber pole came from was they would hang the um, blood soaked gauze on a pole outside. It was so sanitary uh, to dry and then they would use it again. <clears throat> and they'd sort of wrap it around this pole and that became the white and red barber pole. Uh, uh, you, you know, you could tell there was a barber which at that time was a doctor, if you had depression, which they called melancholia, uh, they could bleed you to try to make you feel better. It just made you lightheaded. Um, but, uh, you know, for some some period of time, uh, this stuff was acceptable medical practice. And But you could tell where they were because you could see the strips of uh, red blood-soaked gauze hanging outside. Now they have... Uh, you know a graphical representation of that and it's just like so many things that we do that are cultural and we don't know where the hell they come from uh you know the easter bunny comes from the ancient babylonians because the babylonians revered the rabbit for its fecundity meaning its ability to reproduce and at easter uh women um uh In the Christian faith often will put on a new dress for Easter. Why do they do that? Because the Babylonians uh, celebrated the festival of Ishtar and they um, saw that the trees put on their new coats every spring. It was kind of a fertility thing. You know, at the end of the winter, the spring starts happening, things are coming back to life and they revered that. Um, And so the trees would put on their new coats. And so, Uh, You know, a a woman in 2018 who uh, practices that tradition that was passed down to her from her mother uh, is practicing a ritual that – or, you know, part of a ritual that was established 4,000 years ago. And we don't know where it came from. We just know that we did it. So it it goes from mother to mother to mother, father to son, father to daughter, whatever. So uh, it's interesting. But anyway – so I want to talk a little bit about some uh, bizarre medical thing, techniques from history. And this, again, is from Medical News Today. And number one is the tobacco smoke enema. Uh, in the late 1700s, tobacco started to arrive on English soar, uh, shores from Americas. And along with it – yeah, it's our fault. Along with it came the idea that when used as an enema, tobacco smoke could cure a wide range of ailments. As the name suggests, that tobacco smoke enema involves literally blowing smoke up your ass. Uh, The so-called pipe smoker, London Medic, would use the technique on those who fell into the River Thames and were near drowned. So you you fall into the River Thames, which at that time was full of feces and urine uh, because people were uh, taking dumps in the river or taking their – their chamber pot and just throwing it in the river matter of fact i was at the tower of london they used to um, uh, flood it you know it had a moat around it and uh, queen victoria came to visit at one time and she was so disg- <laughs> disgusted by the smell that uh, she um, uh, had it drained and people who are of who are english history um, buffs will know this story better than i do but anyway there. they It had something to do with Queen Victoria smelling shit. Anyway, um, uh, so uh, the Royal Human Society uh, left resuscitation kits, including the equipment necessary to carry out a tobacco enema at certain points along the river. And uh, one particularly graphic description from 1746 is described in a paper published in The Lancet. A man's wife was pulled from the water, apparently dead, it says. Amid much conflicting advice, a passing sailor proffered his pipe and instructed the husband to insert the stem into his wife's rectum, cover the bowl with a piece of perforated paper, and blow hard. Miraculously, the woman revived. Now, see, that's all it takes. And we do all this CPR and shocking people and pushing drugs and stuff. We should just be sticking a pipe up their ass. I would wager to say she was not actually dead. Back Now, Back then, the definition of death was ceasing respirations. Uh, So we had that definition of death for some time where if you stop breathing, you were dead. Then uh, the ventilator was um, invented where you can shove a tube down somebody and breathe for them if they're not breathing. And so we had to change our definition of death. And so for a while, it was if your heart stopped. And then you were dead and uh then we developed uh cardiopulmonary resuscitation and the advanced cardiac life support protocol with chest compressions and uh, cardioversion and <clears throat> intubation life support and uh medications and all and then we really couldn't say well if your heart stops you're dead so now it is cessation of brain function now if uh the singularity happens and we're able to upload our consciousness to machines, then the whole concept of death will change radically. And, uh, you know, there may be the demise of the body, but the consciousness will persist. So that's uh, – if you're interested in that at all, uh, just Google Ray Kurzweil because he's the man on that. Um uh, word of the benefits quickly spread. People were soon using tobacco smoke enemas to treat everything from headaches and abdominal cramps. Now, that might actually work. There are nicotine receptors in the uh, in the bowel. so uh, They were also treating typhoid and cholera. I'd say that probably didn't work so well. As a matter of fact, when you're um, shooting liquid feces out of your rectum and someone's sticking a pipe in there and their mouth is very close to it and blowing – I suspect that they may be at some risk of being exposed to the disease themselves. You can uh, figure out how that might happen. Um, yeah, it says uh, for if a practitioner were to accidentally breathe in rather than blow out, it's like that, that's kind of basic. If you're going to do a tobacco smoke enema up somebody's ass, it's like um, um, Chauncey, breathe out, don't breathe in. Uh, Perhaps doing a a bout of tobacco-induced coughing, cholera flagellates could pass into their lungs and infect infect them fatally. Thankfully, the introduction of a bellows made the job slightly less hazardous. So there you go. Um, Let's see here. How about cutting teeth? In the old days, infant mortality was sky high. Much of the time, the reason for death was completely unknown. Children frequently died at six months to two years of age, which coincidentally was around the time their first teeth were coming through. So the medical minds of the day thought this might not be simple coincidence, so they concluded the process of teething was also the cause of infant death. And in England and Wales in 1839, over 5,000 deaths were attributed to teething. And even by 1910, the figure was still 1,600. So how did they combat the Evil teething uh, Unfortunately for some of those children involved They developed a wide variety of interventions Including bleeding, blistering And placing leeches on the gums In some cases they even burned The back of the baby's head Why? <laughs> burned the back of the baby's head During the 16th century French surgeon Am. Ambroise Paré introduced gum lancing, and this became the preferred method. Uh, a, la- a paper, again, published in The Lancet explains how popular lancing babies' gums became. Uh, John Hunter would lance a baby's gums up to 10 times And uh, John Marion Sims, 1813 to 1883, treated his first patient, a baby of 18 months old. As soon as I saw some swelling of the gums, I at once took out my lancet and cut the gums down to the teeth. Oh, come on. Ah! The author continues, the physician Marshall Hall, 1790 to 1857, wrote that he would rather lance a child's gums 199 times unnecessarily than omit it once if necessary. And he instructed his students to do it before, during, and after the teeth appeared, sometimes twice a day, these poor kids. Oh, my God. It's unknown how many children died from infections that they developed following such procedures because you know they were – very sterile uh, procedures back then. Um, It didn't disappear for a surprisingly long time. Even as late as 1938, a dentistry textbook offered instructions for gum lancing a teething child. Yeah. So so the kid is, uh, gums are hurting because teeth are coming through and now you're going to take a knife and um, cut their gums and make them worse. So um, there you go. All right. Um, Let's... Let's do another one, improving your smile. Uh, Today, urine has few everyday uses, which is a shame considering its wide availability. Yeah, it would be great if it was worth something. Uh, I used to uh, write a graffiti on uh, the wall of the bathrooms at the university I went to, and I would write, when shit becomes valuable, the poor will be born without assholes. And then I realized that really isn't true. Uh, It's really if shit becomes valuable, those without assholes will be poor. Thank you. All right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Stop. (laughs) Jesus. Uh, Yeah, urine was such a popular commodity back in the day, uh, particularly in Roman times, that people collected it from public urinals. There was even a tax to pay for those who profited from the sale of this golden liquid. Many of urine's uses were non-medical, such as the production of gunpowder or to soften leather. I didn't realize the ancient Romans had gunpowder. I don't think they did. Uh, One less savory use for urine, urine, however, was as a tooth whitener. The ammonia allegedly helps clear teeth of their stains. Uh, probably didn't do much for morning breath. <laughs> it's funny. Apparently, leaving the urine to fester for some time gives the urea time to convert into ammonia, which is an acti- act- antibacterial and bleaching agent used in household cleaning products. Uh, it was not the uh, only the ancient Romans who used this teeth whitening method. Throughout history, it's been used by a number of people. And even today, some are tempted to give it a try. I remember the first uh, weird medicine we had. A guy called in and he would pee on his feet to try to treat his his toe fungus. And if you remember back in the Opian Anthony days, we brought a double vasectomy, feces, and PA John, who is a well controlled diabetic, and um, Pat from Munaki, who at that time was a poorly controlled diabetic, and then Big A, who's just you know, um, he's Big A. Uh, we had them piss in uh, little jars, and then double vasectomy turd had to uh, taste each one uh, to see which one of them, uh, if he could tell which one was diabetic. And uh, I really want to tell him that there's no history behind that. We just made him do it because it was funny. But in fact, in back in the day, um, uh, hundreds – well, hundreds of years ago, and going back thousands of years, physicians actually um, uh, tasted urine in their patients that had what we call polyuria or uh, increased urine output. So the word diabetes comes from the Greek for s- uh, siphon and melitus. Diabetes mellitus, or what we call it, diabetes mellitus uh means that it was uh siphoning you know siphon type urine the guy the guy's pissing like a racehorse and it tastes sweet because melitus means uh, of honey um and then uh, uh there are other people who have a brain tumor or some other problem where they're peeing out free water and uh when you taste that it tastes insipid or i mean there's no flavor to it no delightful sweetness that you would get with Diabetic urine So uh, they would They called it diabetes insipidus And we now would call that Diabetes insipidus So uh, very interesting And um, so there are Thank God They developed test strips So I never had to taste anybody's urine But we made double vasectomy And it It was a good radio bed Um, Have you heard of uh, Trepanation Boy this is a rough one uh, trepanning is the process of boring a hole into somebody's skull, and it sounds just as brutal as it is. And it wasn't always boring like with a uh, with a um, uh, drill. Sometimes they would use a hatchet and just you know hit a, a glancing blow to knock a hole in their skull. And the crazy thing is, there are skulls that you find in burial uh, sites where they did this trepanation. And you can see um, that the the bone was healing. So they must have lived for months, if not years, with um, a big hole in their skull. So uh, it says 5 to 10% of all Neolithic skulls that scientists have so far dug up bear the unmistakable marks of trepanning. And uh, they aren't always able to tell if the surgery was carried out before or after death, but some patients were certainly alive. And that leads to the story that I was just telling you, where you can see these where there's definite healing of, you know, the hole was maybe uh, three inches across and now it's only an inch across and you can see remodeled and uh, healed bone. It's crazy. Um, it says, uh, though mostly carried out on adult males, scientists have also found trepanning holes in the skulls of women and children during Neolithic times. The practice was uh, widespread from a period when long-distance travel and the exchange of ideas was limited, experts of unearthed skulls bearing the marks of trepanning in Europe, Siberia, China, and the Americas. <laughs> it was all the rage. Uh, it didn't die out with the Stone Age. It carried on through the Classical period and even as far as the Renaissance. And, um, you know, uh, specialists will use craniotomies now to treat hematomas, you know, where the blood builds up. Uh, between the skull and the brain, uh, and we'll do what I guess you could define as trepanation, but we'll call it craniotomy in other words, putting a hole in the cranium and, um, or actually cutting the cranium. So, otomy would mean cutting, craniostomy would be leaving a hole there. Um, but anyway, did you know, uh, heroin used to be cough medicine? Um, Bayer. Uh, German company Bayer marketed a particularly potent ingredient, which was heroin. The inclusion of this highly addictive substance was meant to replace opium, which had become a popular drug of abuse. So this was sort of the 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 um, way things went back then. Was so we had opium, and then that was became addictive. So let's try morphine, supposed to be non-addictive opium, and then heroin was supposed to be non-addictive. Morphine, and then now we have, you know, tramadol, uh, which is was supposed to be non-addictive pain medication that still hits the opioid receptors. And it just it's not technically an opioid uh, because it's not derived from uh, you know the opium molecule or the opium molecule, Uh, but uh, it's it's still habit forming. I've heard of lots of patients who have a significant withdrawal syndrome when they try to get off of that stuff. So, um, you know, the question is, did heroin work any better than modern over-the-counter cough suppressants? Because, uh, you know, we have narcotics and cough, cough syrups now. You can get Robitussin AC. That is a uh, guaifenesin syrup. Guaifenesin is an expectorant, um, which basically uh irritates the stomach, stimulates this nerve called the vagus nerve, which increases uh, fluid secretion into the lungs. At least this is the hypothesis, uh, causing your cough to be more productive, which is good if you're trying to get stuff out of there. And then they'll put a little codeine in it just to suppress the cough. So you're only coughing when you absolutely need to. Uh, you can get hydrocodone in cough syrup. Um, there's all kinds of stuff that you can do. So was heroin any better than any of those? And uh, apparently, it was not. It wasn't. As far as they know, it didn't do any better or any worse than any of our current cough syrup. So, um, so anyway, you know, yeah. Before we become too content with today's comparative medical wisdom, uh, when we look back at today's medical practices a hundred years from now, which parts of it are we going to uh, say were barbaric? I can tell you what they'll be. It will be chemo and radiation. We will look back at this age, and we will say that was barbaric to uh, try to kill human living cells inside the human living body with with basically poison or uh, radiation. Now, for right now, it's what we got, but we are advancing. And uh, if you're interested in non pseudoscience cancer cures that are immune. Mediated, go to my website at drsteve.com and click on the link that says non pseudoscience cancer cures. Uh, this stuff, uh, Ketruda, I don't know if you've seen the ads for it. It's fascinating. What it does, it's an, it's a monoclonal antibody. So that means it's, a, it's, it's an immune molecule that targets a specific uh, uh, protein um, uh, site. And the one that it goes after is a site that tumors use to protect themselves from the uh, immune system. So, it, you know, it's just like they've got uh, blinkers on, say, just pass on by, pass on by. And then when, the, um, uh, when this thing attacks, it all of a sudden the lymphocytes, uh, which are uh, immune cells that will kill tumor cells if they're, pointed in the right direction, they will um, all of a sudden go, hey, what the hell are you doing here? It's almost like the scales fall from their eyes and they see uh, these uh, tumor cells exposed and they'll attack them. So it's pretty cool stuff. Um, Where we will have real generalizable cancer treatments will be not in these sort of indirect ways but in a more direct way where you will expose your own white blood cells to your own tumor in a way that it can now recognize that tumor as being foreign. And uh, there's a lot of different ways to do that. Uh, But when you do that, those immune cells will go back in and kill every tumor cell and mop up every molecule um, in in a very efficient way and for the most part leave everything else alone. Now, if the protein that's on that tumor cell is close to like – Say your thy something, a protein that's expressed on your thyroid, they may attack your thyroid too. That's the essence of an autoimmune disorder. But um, uh, t- triggered properly, it will just kill the um, tumor cells. Uh, they did this. Uh, I, I have a, this article on my website, drsteve.com. Click non pseudoscience cancer cures where uh, they have a patient with multiple myeloma, which is a B-cell dyscrasia. Don't worry about that. But it, 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 it's basically multiple tumors in the bones. And uh, they gave this person six million doses of measles vaccine. Now, they had genetically modified the measles vaccine, but only to uh, allow it to um, take on radioactive, I think it was iodine. Uh, Radioactive iodine. It was either radioactive iodine or radioactive um, uh, potassium. I can't remember which. But anyway, um, uh, uh, if it was, let's just say it was radioactive iodine. And so these multiple myeloma cells were all infected by this measles vaccine. Now the person felt crappy. You give somebody six million doses of measles vaccine, uh, which is a live virus, they're going to feel like crap for a day or two. But uh, these uh, viruses have infected the multiple myeloma cells. And the reason that they modified them so that they would hold on to this radioactive uh, atom was so they could image them. And so they put them in front of the scanner and saw that all of the multiple myeloma tumors were infected with this measles uh, virus. And uh, then what does the body do when a cell is infected with the measles virus? It goes in and kills it. And uh, in that, at least that person was cured of multiple myeloma, which is felt to be an incurable disorder that, if you have it long enough, can become a terminal illness. So that was really exciting. So uh, very interested in this stuff. If you know somebody that has cancer that wants to get in on a clinical trial, if they're healthy enough to do it, uh, just go to clinicaltrials.gov and uh, put in the – Uh, The can the specific cancer and see what kind of trials are out there and the things you're looking for. If you're interested in these virus studies are like viral oncolytic studies or immune, just you can Google the uh, or um, sorry, search the uh, keyword immune. And uh, and you might be able to get into one of those or your friend or loved one might be able to. So anyway. All right. Let's take a couple of questions. We've got a few minutes left.
0: Number one thing. Don't take advice from some asshole
1: on the radio. Thank you, Ronnie B. There could not be better advice given.
0: Yeah, I'm just listening to uh, the bit about the uh, monks praying over the water droplets. and uh,
1: First off, I don't know what the hell he's talking
0: about, but let it... I was on a retreat once, uh, instead of going to like a rehab. Anyway, it uh, uh, was kind of a choices retreat, but... They were showing us stuff about the power of the mind and they did one with uh, people and emotions and freezing of snowflakes. And if people were angry, the snowflakes looked angry. And oh, if they were God. happy, the snowflakes looked happy. Or the ice crystals or how they formed. I don't, I haven't ever researched it further, but I'm sure you could find it on the internet. But it was uh, interesting to see that the, the snowflakes looked like the mood that the person was trying to project at them okay. when, they, when they froze, um, <clears throat> the water froze into the flake.
1: So this is a, um, a trick that you use to motivate people, and it, is, it has a psychological aspect to it. So how would we study this? First off, how does a snowflake look angry or happy? Well, that's going to be in the eye of the beholder, but you could test it. And and this is how you do it. You get someone who's angry and you freeze these water droplets so that they become snowflakes. And then you show it to somebody else. OK, you have to pass it to somebody who doesn't know if the person was angry or happy. OK? So that, that this is one of your researchers. And then they have to take it to the next person who is a uh, research stu- uh, participant and their only job – is to look at snowflakes and say, do they look happy or mad? And if there is a statistical correlation that is greater than chance, then you could say maybe there's an effect and then you got to investigate it. Because what in the hell uh, mechanism could you propose – that would say uh, that the mind is able to affect the way a snowflake melts so that it – or a uh, snowflake freezes so that it looks happy. I, I just have to know what that would be. So uh, it's like a double-blind study. Uh, the amazing Randy does these things with these fake psychics all the time and uh, it, this is this is the way to do it. So you have a, you have two rooms. And a researcher in both rooms and then a researcher that goes between the two. And um, you uh, get the angry person to get people to come in in a random – I don't even know how you get somebody that's angry. Or you could say, you know, get angry about something and watch these snowflakes uh, form and make them be angry. And then take pictures of them or however you're going to preserve them. You then would hand it to – The runner between the rooms and there's ways you can keep them from seeing your bias. You know, you you could pass it through a a hole in a a curtain or there's all kinds of things that you could do. And then they take it to the next room and say, look at this snowflake. Does it look (laughs) – it's so ridiculous. Does it look happy or does it look mad? And again, uh, at the end of the study, you would decode these. Uh, you would have to correlate uh, you know um, make sure that you're keeping track of the result on the right sided room with the um, uh, with the attempt on the left sided room, right? And so that you can match them up. So a hundred percent correlation would be every time the person was mad, the person in the other room looked at the picture. And said, that snowflake looks mad. And, and if it was happy, then they said it was happy. So anything um, – <laughs> and, and then, of course, perfect 50-50 isn't what we're really expecting, is it? Uh, we would expect it to approach 50-50 over time if it if the answer is purely by chance. And if there's no bias been introduced through this process, but it's not going to be exactly 50-50, it might be 49-51 and you have to calculate what the error of measurement is so that you can say plus or minus. As long as that plus or minus intersects with 50-50, then you can and, – and, or there's no statistical significance between the two. That's really what I'm trying to say. <clears throat> then you can say it's uh, just chance. And uh, that it's a psychological effect when people stare at a snowflake and they're mad and then they look at the snowflake, they perceive it as being mad or whatever a mad snowflake still. I don't know what it looks like. Um, uh, Now, we would need a p-value. So you may see these studies and it will say p less than 0.05. What that means is that there's only a 5 in 100 chance that that this could be – uh, uh, that this positive effect occurred because of random chance, and that's an acceptable p-value. Uh, so five in one hundred be one in twenty. So it's only you know ni- nineteen times you do this, and you'll get a positive effect because it's a true positive effect. And then one time it might be chance. So uh, we want there to be compelling evidence. And you have to do the statistics right, which means you're going to have to have a large sample size. But you could do this study. I would love to do it. I mean, if somebody wants to fund the study, we'll do it. It wouldn't be that that expensive to do. I'd have to figure out. I don't know how they were doing the snowflakes. But anyway. (laughs) But see, we can take um, a bullshit um, study like that or uh, a story like that, and and teach science from it. So I think that's a, a worthy thing. All right.
0: Hello there, Dr. Stares. Uh, Phil here. <laughs> I have a question. How is it that a tattoo is put on your body and it goes to layers of skin? And my question is, we always regenerate skin, fluff, fossil, so how does it stay in? Now, I'm assuming it must be through a certain level of skin, why it stays where skin would never flip off, but doesn't skin like resurface and yes. go Great up question. one, you know, shed, go up one? Or, or yep. if it's just not, it's just that's why it stays because the upper layer always goes off. I'm assuming that's it. Maybe I answered my own question, but <laughs> let me know that, Dr. Steve. Thanks, and good job. Bye. Give yourself a bill!
1: Yeah, so um, if you only put ink in the epidermis, which is the very top layer of skin, Uh, not only would it look bad because those cells really um, are are very thin and they're just mostly made up of keratin, which is sort of the body's version of plastic, your hair and nails are made up of keratin as well. Uh, Then yeah, it would just slough off. So when you do a henna tattoo or you do a fake tattoo, you know, they just kind of slough off eventually. Um, a real tattoo goes down deeper than that into the layers that are more permanent. So, skin, um, sorry, I keep getting um, get, getting interrupted. Sorry. Uh, your old pal, Dr. Steve, is on call 24 7. Both of these were non urgent calls, so I'm going to blow them off for now. Uh, skin cells, there's a basal membrane. Because, you know, if it all just slept off, it seems like our skin would just fall off, right? why doesn't it do that? Well, there is a basement membrane that is very um, elastic Most for most of the skin. And um, there are basal um, skin cells that are round and have small, you know, normal-looking nuclei. And they look just like regular cells. If I showed you those, you would look like a classic depiction of a cell. As ty- And these are attached pretty firmly to uh, the – the, the bottom membrane, and um, that's why your skin will move a little bit and be a little elastic, but you can't just rotate your skin off of your arm. And uh, as time goes on, those cells, and they're programmed to do this, will uh, become more and more superficial, and as they become more and more superficial, they'll let go of that basement membrane, and they'll become flat. And with a little tiny dead nucleus inside, and those are called squamous cells at that point, and they will uh, eventually slough off and fly out into the atmosphere and uh, get all over everything. Um, The interesting thing is, is what happens if you have a piece of skin that can't slough off? What would happen then? Well, that is the case of a sebaceous cyst. Uh, You may have seen people that have these cysts on their skin, and uh, they'll almost always have a little hole in them. That's the site of the original injury, and um, they may have poked a hole in their arm uh, from a pen or a fast-moving grain of sand at the beach. Who knows? And uh, it drives living skin cells under the skin. So now they – those cells, when they mature, they've got no place to slough off. So if they don't have any place to slough off, what are they going to do? They're just going to collect uh, under the skin, and they'll eventually form a cyst. That And the inside of that cyst will have this sort of um, mangled cottage cheese stuff that stinks to high heaven. It's really pretty nasty. And um, it, I, my wife had some protein shampoo that smelled just like the inside of a sebaceous cyst. If I can find it, I... I'll tell you all about it so that you can go to, like, a beauty salon and you can smell it and get a whiff of what sebaceous uh, sebaceous cyst smells like. Uh, Rich Voss used to have one behind his ear, and that's what he would rub behind his ear and then stick his finger under people's noses and make Bobby Kelly puke. So uh, there will be a a cyst wall, and then there will be this nasty stuff uh, in the middle. Now, um, when the pressure – of the cyst growing is exactly equaled by the pressure of the skin around it. i trying to hold it in. It'll stop growing. So there's a, a a terminal size that it can get. This will be violated if these things get infected. If uh, one or two bacteria can get there, that dead skin that's in there is moist and it's proteinaceous and bacteria love it. And all of a sudden that cyst, the internal pressure will increase tenfold and those cysts will grow tenfold, which is why if you've got one, it's usually a good idea to just have it removed while you can do it because when it uh, gets infected, now it becomes an urgent thing and um, you have things like uh, uh, happen to your doctor like what happened to me when I opened one of those up once and it was under such high pressure, it just uh, sprayed into my face. And I uh, covered my glasses, and what do you do when something surprises you like that? You open your mouth in uh in uh, shock and exclaim, "Oh my God!" and then a bunch of uh infected sebaceous stuff goes inside your mouth, and you can't stop because you can't just go and puke while your patient is lying on the table so kids don't let don't let this happen to you. If you have a big sebaceous cyst somewhere on your body, just have it removed before something like that happens to it. All right.
0: And I have a question, but uh, someone emailed me and said to call into the show. I think they put 1 o'clock instead of 10 o'clock. Nah, don't worry about it. Anyways, uh, instead of uh, doing the edge that Jim Norton does, she might blow a load, is uh, get erect usually during a shower or after a shower and put a wet towel or a I use a beach towel because I have a big cock. But, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> uh So you do penis push, push-ups and it's uh, kind of like a Kegel, Kegel exercise. So
1: Okay, so he's draping, draping a um, beach towel over his erect penis and then uh, doing chi- lift like chin-ups
0: with it. So Once you build up that muscle... Or curls.
1: Penis curls.
0: You can actually turn off uh, you from uh, you know blowing a load, so uh, but yeah, that's that's basically what I do. I last for hours on end only because I can turn it off. It's very hard to turn it back on sometimes. But
1: this guy's just bragging, <laughs> but that might work. That is one way to uh, do Kegel exercises, no question about that. I mean, I'm I, I don't know how many reps you have to do. I'm doing Kegels right now just because I'm thinking about it. But I do not have an erect penis and I don't have any, you know, a weight hanging off of it. If any of you all try this, use a washcloth first. Don't use a heavy weight. Don't put too much tension on your erect schlong. Let me know if you have any positive effects from that. That would be very interesting. I'm not advocating that you do it. I'm just saying if you do decide to do it because this guy said it, then let me know. Uh, Thanks always. Go to Dr. Scott when he's here. We can't forget Rob Sprantz, Bob Kelly, Greg Hughes, Anthony Cumia, Jim Norton, Travis Teft, Eric Nagel, Roland Campo, Sam Roberts, Pat Duffy, Dennis Falcone, Ron Bennington, and Fez Watley, whose early support of the show has never gone unappreciated. Listen to our Sirius XM show on the Faction Talk channel, Sirius XM channel 103, Saturdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, Sunday at 5 p.m. Eastern, on demand, and other times at Jim McClure's Pleasure. Many thanks to our listeners whose voicemail and topic ideas make this job very easy. Go to our website at drsteve.com for schedules and podcasts and other crap. Until next time, check your stupid nuts for lumps, quit smoking, get off your asses and get some exercise. We'll see you in one week for the next edition of Weird Medicine.